good. I'd like to ask for your attention. Um, this is not a guided meditation, so it's a kind of embodied, open-eyed attention. Um, this is an auspicious moment. We're beginning a period of in-depth practice. These periods are not easy to come by, as you know best. And we would like to make uh, the most of this occasion. So one way to make much of this occasion is that we affirm uh, our aspiration. Much of Buddhist mind training moves between, uh, generally within the sequence of a day, uh, a movement of aspiration uh, based on vision, based on a sense of the possible uh, that we affirm to um, implement such an aspiration through dedication, through our energy, through our presence, through our listening. And going through the day, practicing, applying, bringing forth energy, meeting whatever needs to be met. And at the end of the day, usually the movement goes in the other direction. Whatever has happened, whatever has accrued in terms of goodness, we share with others. So we have one big movement that starts with offering energy, reaching out, and then practicing, and then sharing the fruits of that practice at the end of the day. That is a sort of an energetic movement that is in many Buddhist traditions a standard pattern. So sometimes uh, traditions use the power of vows. So the aspiration is uh, buffered up with a vow to uh, do what one does to free other human beings, to minimize suffering in one's world, or to not be acting on the basis of one's um, anxieties, or not to be on the basis of one's stinginess with energy, or with time, or with heart. There's many ways one can practice with such attitudes. So. Um, I would like you to ponder for a moment what your aspiration is. Not what your expectation is, but what your aspiration is. You know, think big. Go for the big stuff. There is a power that is in beginnings and in a vision, and it's that power that carries. It will probably not turn out as you have planned. But that's not the point. The point is that the energetic momentum of such an aspiration can carry you through all kinds of unexpected things. It can underpin your practice. It can underpin your um, meeting resistance and hindrances. It can um, help you meet unexpected occurrences. And it can be something like a baseline in, your, in the deepening of your movement towards greater uh, authenticity with yourself and greater um, realization of you know, the promises of the Buddhist path. So acknowledge for a moment, what are your aspirations? And 
Whenever we acknowledge aspirations, we also meet something that is slightly afraid, that is clamoring to have one's needs met or to maybe fearful of the effort that is entailed. So I'd like you to take a moment to look, what aspirations do you have for this time here at the FR, but also bigger? If you find no such aspirations, you probably need to think to what you want to dedicate your energies in life. If you're not having aspirations, then um, you're likely to going to dedicate your energies to something else, you know, parental ambitions or uh, fears you've been conditioned into internalizing. Um, so it's probably good to go out into the open with this. Please ponder in the course of the day your aspirations for those weeks you're staying here and for your life, basically. What do you want to give your energies to? And it's good to affirm this. Much in meditation practice is not about our method or our technique. Much in our meditation practices is about the big stuff. A, it's our life that catches up with us. So what you get is not the result of your technique or of what a Kinjano says or of how the food at the FR is, but what you get is the result of your life. That's what we do. We make an invitation to our minds for things to catch up with us. When we meditate, we sit down, we stop running. We stop running ahead of ourselves. So what inevitably is going to happen, and please take this as a compliment, you know, things are going to catch up. Your life is going to catch up with you. We know that. You seasoned practitioners, you've been through this. And yet we want to affirm the rightness of this. We want to affirm that this is not just inevitable, it's actually transformative. This is the path, this is meditation, this is the practice. At this stage it's important to sample some of my, you know, what do I actually have in mind for this time? Usually we arrive at retreats and we have programs. Yeah, there's the program that's on the schedule, you know, and then there is my little program. And my program says, you know, I got to sort out this question in my life. I want to study this. I want to do that. And I would like you to acknowledge parallel programs and, if possible, give them up. Enter this program, you know, enter this schedule, enter this teaching, enter this place, be here. Be here with as much of yourself as you can. And learn to trust. Learn to trust that what needs happening in your life will happen under these conditions. If you meet these conditions properly, you will happen to meet the conditions of your life. You will attend to what needs attending in your life. Generally, if you're an independent and uh, uh, resilient individual, as I would expect you to be, um, then that uh, some negotiation needs to go on there. Usually we, 
We have our own plans for our own lives. We have our own perceptions of what we want to do and what we need to do and what's missing in our practice. And so we have concepts of our own practice. Most of you guys will already have fairly clear concepts of where your practice is at and what you need to do and what you're already good at. So my chance to actually get a word in there is generally very limited, you know, because uh, there seems to be some anecdotal evidence that um, you already know what meditation is. And in case I disagree with some of this, you tacitly overhear this. And, or you only hear the things you dread me saying. That's also a possibility. But basically, you have already some kind of picture. And I like some of that picture. I'm not even saying it's wrong or bad. Or I just like that this picture comes in and becomes clear so that it becomes part of your practice to be with that picture. That that picture also is subject to your meditative in investigation. That it isn't the sort of fallback, unquestionable default truth that somehow organizes your practice. Buddhist meditation traditions across the board have affirmed the necessity of meeting our embodied reality. This is not easy for uh, Western folks who have received much training for their minds and maybe some training for their body, but generally they haven't gone together very well. Uh, so much of us meditators are introspective folk we like to go to places where things don't hurt and where we have calm and refined mind states. Uh, that doesn't really get us out of the fact that we're quite embodied and that these bodies both have needs and have patterns. And it's good to acknowledge both the needs and the patterns of these bodies. So every big meditation tradition across the board has made great emphasis um, bringing awareness to the body as a major task. So the first major exercise, if you want to do uh, Satipatthana, is bringing awareness to the embodied dimension of my experience. I'm not a disembodied brain trying to get awakened. Uh, personally, I'm not interested in disembodied brains, however awakened they are. Yeah? To be honest with you. An awakened brain in a vat is not really my vision of freedom, happiness and awakening. So, um, what do these bodies do? It has an incredible impact on the states of mind. So, sleep, food, movement, uh, environmental factors, larger context, leave an energetic imprint on this body and this body by its own use can harness energies or can lose energies or can um, become stale. We all know that. Tibetans call it the sinking mind. Christian contemplative tradition calls it the achedya, the sourness of the mind. Um, we all have sat through sleepy hours. We all have um, crumpled up in bad postures. We, we all have uh, 
felt stale, energetically stale in our practice with a correspondingly stale mental states. So it's necessary that we know how to make these bodies alive, come alive. You'll have to find out what, your bo what makes your body come alive. This body here comes alive through uh, questioning. It comes alive through um, moving attention through the body rather than trying to fix attention or um, pin attention down to preordained places, possibly small places like the tip of your nose, um, have not helped this body to come alive. So this body comes alive when it gets an orientation how much energy is actually present, how much juice is in the system, how much do I feel of myself. So there are three magic questions which basically take me in and I would recommend. And these three magic questions are very simple. The first question goes, what's happening now? Yeah. This question takes me out of the past, out of the future, or the thought about the future, or the thought about the past, and brings me into an immediacy of embodied happening. What's happening now? That's the first magic question. Whenever you ask this question, you're in present time. The great thing about bodies, and that's why meditative traditions are so insistent about bodies, it's not that if they're sitting upright, they're looking more pretty. They do look more pretty when they sit upright, admittedly, but that's not the point. The point is that whenever I'm feeling the body, whenever I am consciously aware of what the body feels, I am here. I'm in the anchored in the present moment. Yeah, that's the, in fact the only guarantee you have to be anchored in the present moment, feeling the body. Anything else, the most lofty mind state, always bears the risk that you're not really here. Yeah? It can be treacherously peaceful and you may still be utterly dissociated. Dissociation is precisely very peaceful. So meditators, beware. You know, first task is you have to make sure that you have a good landing position. And the landing position is your embodied reality. Irrespective of your practice, irrespective of your degree of realization, you need to be able to feel your body in its fullness, in its detail, and you need to know a way to go back to that body. Any stage of practice is necessary for you to do that. Otherwise, you risk that you're off somewhere in a parallel dimension, that you're s settling for some mental construct uh, on which you surf, only to find out that it's not going to take you anywhere, even if it may feel peaceful or safe or controlled. All dissociated states feel very peaceful, very controlled, very safe. Problem is, it doesn't feel so forever, and it doesn't actually address your issues. It's just the feeling you get. So we need to make sure introspective folk, like meditators, tend to be a little more prone to dissociative habits. Um, we need to make sure that we're actually with our bodies, that we find a way back if we're not there, that we recall these bodies, that we make these bodies our friends. All meditative traditions have understood this. 
Not because bodies are intrinsically pleasant to have or to inhabit, but they are the way in which we find back into present moment experience. And it's only in present moment experience that we can be free. You can't be free in the past and you can't be free in the future. You can only be free in present moment experience. You can only be happy present moment experience. We, we've done it enough. The wandering mind is an unhappy mind. Yeah. Default mode network, as necessary, even as indispensable as it may be, is a very unhappy place. There's no awakening there. There's no contentment there. There is no fullness there. As long as we think, and as long as we're not in the present moment, we can't be happy. It's as simple as that. So, your chances to actually understand something are in the present moment. Your chances to be happy are in the present moment. Your chances to do something are only in the present moment. You can only act in the present moment. So as soon as we're not there, we're basically impotent. We're basically helpless. We're basically powerless. So if we want to actually change something, transform something, participate in something, enjoy something, we have to be capable of being present. Because that's the only place where we can engage, enjoy, act compassionately, do something. Present moment is also the only place where I can wake up. I can't wake up in the past or in the future. So the body helps me to keep meeting that present moment because the beauty is you never get yesterday's body or tomorrow's headache. Yeah? Whenever you get something of your body, it's happening now. That's the simple truth. So as soon as you have a corner of your body, undramatic as it may be, even unpleasant as it may be, you are sure that you're connected with a present moment experience. That's what Buddhist uh, meditation traditions have all understood. And so they have, in the first section on Kaya Nupassana, the contemplation of body, um, made sure that we begin with posture, iriyapata, that we are the orientation of this body in space, the orientation of this body um, in terms of gravity, and the orientation and the organization of the limbs of this body in respect to gravity. So, very simple. So, I know you're old, old stagers. Um, despite this, let me start at the very beginning. The blessing of the Japanese tradition have given us this contraption. Um, Theoretically, this should contain kapok. This is obviously not what it contains. It probably contains something else, spelt maybe. You know this. Think of this not as a cushion. Think of this as a wedge. Yeah? The idea of this is not to cushion your meditative experience. The idea is to act as a wedge, to basically heighten your pelvis just a little bit so that Basically, you can live, sit slightly elevated. The idea of this is that your thighs don't need to stretch so much and that you can fill the small of your back. If you 
bear with me, put the back of your hand into the small of your back. Now, if you have a sizable belly, obviously this works a lot better, but if push comes to shove, you can do it even without belly, basically. So fill the small of your back with a gentle rolling of your pelvis. If you're on a chair, the same applies. Just make sure you come off your backrest and make sure you have some weight on your feet. Yeah. So you sit upright and then you roll your pelvis just a little bit back so that your, the small of your back starts to fill up. The feeling that you should get is that you feel the sit bones carrying the weight of your body. Yeah? So the sit bones transmit the weight of your body directly into that cushion. Yeah? So whenever you sit down, whatever practice you do, you make sure that you connect your sit bones very clearly with the, with the ground, with the cushion, with the chair, the bench you're on. You fill the small of your back and you open your chest. That's the second area, upper part of your chest, your sort of bronchial area, make sure this opens up. There seems to be an unwritten law that meditators kind of invert upon themselves, sort of go into a navel-gazing posture. We want to avoid this, so by grounding hips, filling the small of your back and then opening your chest, even if this may feel exaggerated, artificial, unnatural, Consider that what you feel is just the habit of what you do. If, you, if you're not perfectly awakened, uh, there's doubt that what you do may not be leading there. So it's probably worth questioning this. Even if you come to the conclusion all is perfect as is, um, allow yourself to question this. So filling the small of the back, opening the bronchial area, opening your chest, and then very important, third big key area is position of your chin. Yeah? Now there's some dramatic impact when you raise your gaze so that your gaze goes out level rather than going down. If you move your head such, think of those, th the angle of your gaze, think of those as, as handlebars. So you move up the handlebars of your gaze so that they go out horizontally, even if you close your eyes. So basically, you have a stable, grounded posture coming from the sit bones through the pelvis that carries your spine, an open chest, and a chin that determines basically the fulcrum of your head. So exercise this a little bit. Exaggerate, seek the extremities. Pulled, yeah, the, the over-zen posture and then the kind of opposite which pinches the back of your cervical vertebrae, but relaxes this part and then you're looking where it feels normal that's not where you stop just notice and you're looking for the place where you have the least amount of weight in your head and where the tone in the front and the back part of your neck are similar You exaggerate, imagining you're being pulled up a little bit from the top of your cranium. And after having exaggerated that way, you, you relax into that alignment. 
Now ask your body to remember that. Remember also that whatever we do, the body will start to feel normal in, in so doing. Yeah. So we can't trust sensation. It's not so that what I feel in the body is more real. Yeah. There are degrees of reality. Neurologically, the most reliable sensations are weight. Uh, push comes to shove. Um, it's the vestibulary system of your mind, of your brain, that actually wins the game. So if your eyes have conflicting messages toward your sense of balance picks up, then the sense of balance wing wins. Yeah. For meditators, that means we need to establish a sense of balance. That's the most reliable. Sensations of weight are more reliable about our posture than anything else we may feel. So make sure that you give some space to this. I will keep mentioning this since we're in Kayanupasana, contemplation of body. But you will also need to make that your practice, even if I stop mentioning it. So whenever you sit down, you verify what's happening in your sit bones, how, how much weight is on your left buttock, on your right buttock, on your left hip bo uh, sit bone, on your right one. Then you're consciously making sure that you fill the small of your back, that you sit up from your hips, that you build your vertebrae upwards, widen your chest, and then you take up the gaze. Yeah. Even if you close your eyes, you take up the gaze. There is a dramatic widening of spatial awareness and a corresponding tone of mind if you take up your head. Sometimes just looking at the floor like this and shifting your head up will change your state of mind. There's a profound connection there between inner awareness and task-oriented outer awareness, which if you go up and hold the inner space and the outer space at the same time, you can often dramatically change your quality of mind. What you do after that is you scan, you ask. First magic question, what's happening now? Second magic question now is, how does it feel? Well, deceptively simple. You're becoming specific. You know? Object awareness sets in and you're asking, how does it feel? So there'll be many things. At any one moment, we experience so many different things. In fact, it's a grotesque amount of stuff we experience and only very little of this we actually process. Huge amounts of units of information come through our senses and only very, very few of those informational units actually get processed consciously. So we start to specify a little bit. What's happening? How does it feel? And then we can sample. Yeah. How does it feel? What is dominant? Dominant sensations are a good one to start with. What is the dominant tone of my body posture right now? Then you go there for a moment, you feel the reassuring solidity of your pelvic 
connection to the lower spine, warmth in your belly, heaviness in your eyes, a knotty shoulder, whatever. You, you acknowledge generally in descending degrees of intensity what is there. You take stock. You don't focus in on there. You don't concentrate on it. You just acknowledge. You hold for a moment. Ah, oh, okay. Familiar knotty shoulder. Nice warmth. Reassuring solidity. Something like that. Then you go on. What, what else is there? What else do I feel? And you're trying to create a representation of your body that is as connected as possible. So you're trying to expand. Rather than focusing on an individual sensation, as we would in mindfulness of breathing, we're trying to actually get as much of the bodily tone on board. We're trying to make sure that what we feel as embodied holes comes onto the map, comes onto the introspective meditator's map. Can I be with a body as a whole, not just a body as a bundle of individual sensations? So we're reaching out from the most intense sensation and see, okay, what else? What is it connected with? What's, what's the edge of this sensation? Where does it end? So I'm reaching out. And what that does is it produces a kind of enveloping type of spatial awareness. Starting from a topical awareness, a sensation, I'm reaching out and grow bigger. My suggestion is you do this for a few minutes, the beginning of your practice, before you do anything else. Third magical question is, finally, more specific even, it asks, can I be in conscious relationship with this? So the second is, what's happening? How does it feel? Can I be in conscious relationship with it? Very simple. Good. Um, let us practice. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org dot org slash donate.